Hello, and welcome to A View from the Bench, a podcast about my experiences and perceptions in the courtroom dealing with the trial of major cases over a legal career spanning almost five decades. I'm your host, Albert McKegg, and today we will be talking about a capital murder case I handled and how the facts of the defendant's life and background were fairly stunning when they finally came out. The details I recount are not graphic, but they do deal with violent crime. I've entitled this episode, Capital Murder Doesn't Always Mean a Death Sentence. Before we get started, though, and because I still sit as a senior state district judge, I have to do the disclosure routine. Apologies for that, but it's a necessary obstacle to overcome. In these episodes, I will not be giving a legal opinion on the law, but merely my impression of how certain laws fit certain fact situations. Also, nothing said in this podcast is intended to show or predict how I will rule on either current or future cases. The Judicial Code of Ethics prohibits my commenting on cases pending in my court or criticizing the actions of other trial judges. All cases that I discussed will have been disposed of, and I no longer have any jurisdiction or authority over those cases. With those disclosures out of the way, let's talk about a view from the bench. This case is about a capital murder in which two men robbed a convenience store and, in the process, killed the owner of the store. A murder committed during the commission of another felony, such as aggravated robbery, like in this case, takes the case from a first-degree felony to capital murder. A first-degree felony has a punishment range of from five years to life in prison plus a fine, while capital murder has either a death sentence or life in prison without parole. Basically, the defendant will die in prison. Either is dependent, of course, on the defendant being convicted by proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. In a future podcast, I will give you the anatomy of a major criminal trial so that the process of a trial will be more clear to you. The facts here are all too common for this type of offense. The two young men were serious drug users and abusers, and in order to feed their drug dependency, they decided to rob a convenience store. I don't remember all the details of the investigation, but basically they chose to do this late in the day when there would be few customers and the till would be full of money. They entered the store, pulled out weapons, and demanded money. The store owner was in the process of complying when one of the men shot the owner, killing him. Apparently, the incident was so shocking and unexpected to the non-shooter that he ran out of the store, leaving the shooter to collect the loot. The incident was recorded on security cameras, and these two geniuses had been regular customers of the store in the past and actually lived in the area, so they were clearly and easily recognized. An investigation ensued, and the two were quickly arrested. The non-shooter couldn't say enough fast enough to let the authorities know he did not anticipate the shooting and wanted nothing to do with it. He definitely identified the shooter, and that pretty much wrapped up the investigation. The cases were taken to the grand jury, and both men were indicted for capital murder and aggravated robbery. A deal was cut with the non-shooter to testify against the shooter in return for a 20-year prison sentence on the aggravated robbery charge, with the murder charge being dropped. The shooter's attorney persuaded the prosecutor to offer a deal for the shooter to make an open plea to capital murder with the option that the trial judge, me, could find the defendant guilty of a lesser charge of first-degree murder if the situation warranted. Also, the death penalty was taken off the table as a possible punishment. The two sides came to me to see if I would agree to such a deal, and after discussing it with the attorneys, I agreed to accept such an open plea. 
As I mentioned in a prior episode, when an open plea of guilty is made with sentencing by the judge, the trial judge is the sole authority on deciding the sentence to be given. There is no jury involved. That's what I agreed to do, and the plea was made and the pre-sentence investigation was commenced in in anticipation for a future sentencing hearing. As I also mentioned earlier, a pre-sentence investigation, or PSI, is a full background workup on a defendant that includes age, education, family history, work history, military service, if any, prior criminal history, and just about everything relevant to deciding on a just sentence for the defendant. Keep in mind that after the defendant was arrested, he had remained in jail pending the outcome of his trial. A bail bond was set, but he never tried to raise the money to make it. In the vernacular of the system, he was building up good time credit for his inevitable prison sentence. So at the time of the sentencing hearing, the shooter was still in custody. Also, very soon after the defendant was first arrested, I appointed attorneys to handle his case. There is a special list of attorneys who are qualified to serve on capital murder cases, and at first, I used attorneys from that list. At the time, the county had a contract with a group called the Regional Capital Defenders Project, and they handle only capital murder cases throughout the state of Texas. When the death penalty was taken off the table as an option, the project withdrew from the case, and I appointed two well-qualified attorneys to handle the case. An interesting side note is that the store owner was of Palestinian descent and, in fact, had come to the USA from the Palestinian territories many years before. His family still lived in Palestine, and his father, brother, uncle, and a couple of other family members came over to the U.S. for the trial proceedings. The father and uncle came to me with an offer that they would pay the defendant's bail bond if I would reduce the bond to $50,000 and let him out of jail. I could tell that this was not an offer made out of the goodness of their hearts, but they wanted the shooter out of jail and on the run so they could get to him. They didn't say that outright, but it was very strongly implied. Since I really don't control who makes a person's bond, only the amount of the bond, I could only talk to them about how that was a really bad idea. In the end, I did not reduce the bond, and they didn't make the shooter's bond, so we proceeded to trial. The two attorneys defending the shooter did a great job. They had worked up a full and complete background investigation on him, going back to early childhood, school, family, family life, and all those types of relevant things. Those are all things that are so very important to a judge in making a decision on sentencing. At the time of sentencing, I don't remember his exact age, but I believe that the defendant was in his early 20s. The evidence of the young man's childhood and family life were beyond tragic. His father was a drug addict and alcoholic who beat the defendant and his mother constantly and brutally. When he wasn't abusing them, he was either gone or running around with other women. The shooter's mother was a part-time prostitute so that she could put food on the table when her husband was gone or blowing all their money on booze and drugs. Their mother was also a drug addict and an alcoholic, as well as a harshly and badly beaten and beaten down woman. The shooter had a sister who was, in light of the circumstances, almost normal, although she certainly had problems of her own and and ended up in my court later on with criminal charges of her own. While the shooter was a teenager, his mom regularly bought him drugs and alcohol. In fact, she bought him an eight ball of cocaine for his 16th birthday, and they snorted it together. An eight ball of cocaine is about one-eighth of an ounce. That's enough for a major felony all by itself if a person is caught with that much in their possession. 
Taking away the fact that the shooter had killed a man in cold blood, his childhood and family life was heartbreaking and tragic. Unfortunately, while it was worse than most, you would be surprised at how many major felons have a similar background and similar dysfunctional family life. The underside of our culture is badly broken, and it isn't getting better but worse. We're in the second and third generation of children being born with fetal alcohol or fetal drug syndrome, and there is very little that we can do to help them overcome those terrible afflictions. In most cases, their mental acuity is very low, sometimes dysfunctional, and often their physical abilities are affected. My personal opinion, and this is strictly my personal opinion on mothers afflicting unborn children with drugs and alcohol, is that they should be put in prison, but I'm not in charge of that, and that's probably a good thing. Getting back to the matter at hand, we set the murder case for the sentencing hearing, and the state made its case for a heavy punishment, and the defense made a case for leniency based on the terrible life the defendant had lived through. After all the evidence from both sides was in and the closing arguments were made, and before sentencing, I lit in to the shooter's parents, telling them just what I thought about what they had done to the young man and the monster they had created. They started to get up and leave, and I ordered them to stay in place and told the bailiffs to keep them there, and they would listen to all I had to say to them and to their son. I told them that if I had the power to do it, I would sentence them to prison along with their son, as they deserved it more than he did. But again, that wasn't one of my options either. Using the analogy of the movie about Old Yeller, the lovable dog that ended up getting rabies from wild hogs, I convicted the shooter of capital murder and sentenced the shooter to life in prison without parole. He had killed the store owner in cold blood, and there was very little remorse apparent for what he had done. While my heart went out to him for the horrible life he had lived, I knew he was irretrievably broken and had to be put away, just as old Yeller had to be put down because he was irretrievably broken too. The defendant will die in prison. After sentencing, the store owner's family was given the opportunity to address the defendant and to me, the court. The father faced me and was obviously barely composed. Finally, he burst out shouting, and this was with tears streaming down his face. He said, thank you, thank you, thank you, and God bless you, and God bless you, and God bless America. I will tell you that was a very moving thing, to say the least. Fortunately, most good citizens never have to see that side of life in America. Judges and court personnel deal with it all the time. I can tell you that it is wearing and it's hard to handle sometimes. We regularly receive notices about mental health services that are available to court personnel. Post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, for this kind of stuff is real. I'm blessed with a strong Christian faith and firm outlook on life that protects me from serious mental stress, but I can tell you that over time it does wear a person down a bit. At any rate, as the title says, a capital murder doesn't always mean the death penalty for the defendant. I'll see you next time, right here. Until then, may God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. (music) 